Morning. So glad you guys are here today for part two of this series. We're calling What Happens to You When You Die. If you're a guest with us, what we like to do is we like to, like to take a topic that seems relevant or a book of the Bible. We spend a few weeks exploring those things and we call them sermon series. And this series is is really one that was birthed out of Easter because at Easter time what we do is we just pull everybody that's here, everybody online, in Facebook, whatever it is, however we can get your opinion, we try and get it and we just ask you to, to carte blanche, ask whatever you want about culture, about Christianity, religion, whatever it is, ask us any question you want. And then we'll do a sermon series on it, and we call that sermon series, You Asked For It. And that series is what's next, but there were so many questions around this idea of heaven and hell and what happens to you when you die that we decided we better just make a whole series just for that. And so that's what this is, what happens to you when you die. I find this to be a very interesting question to ask because every culture, every person, Every religion in the history of mankind has asked this. Archaeologists have uncovered cave drawings depicting the afterlife. Empires like the Egyptians have dedicated huge ceremonies and figured out uh, just unique embalming processes in order to preserve their rulers for the afterlife, monuments and shrines are dedicated every single day to people who have died. And so whether people realize it or not, they're asking themselves, what happens to me when I die? Every religion, every culture, they all have a hypothesis about what's going to happen. And so last week I asked you, well, who are you going to believe? Do you want to believe the naturalists who say that when you die, you just die? There is no afterlife. You're just a body here on earth. You just die. You can believe the universalists who say that, well, everybody just ends up in heaven. That's what they believe. You could believe the uh, atheists who also, like naturalists, say you just die. Muslims who say that you'll stand before Allah and be judged. Buddhists say it's like a weird Groundhog Day where you just come back as a different person until you figure out your karma in life. Or the Catholics who believe in purgatory, which I told you, I'm not picking on the Catholics. I'm just saying that word's nowhere to be found in the Bible. I didn't even tell you about the Mormons because last week was family Sunday. So all the kids were in here and Mormons believe you inherit a planet with 12 virgins. I thought that conversation might get weird on the way home. So I just left that one alone. So you didn't have to explain that to the kids, but everybody believes something. Something is going to happen to you when you die, and everybody is living in such a way that defends their position. Either either nothing's going to happen, so you might as well just live it up while you're here on earth, or something is going to happen, and you need to live in light of the fact of what's going to happen. And what we as Christians believe is that when you die, you will either go to a place called heaven or a place called hell. And we are banking our lives on what Jesus taught us about both of those places. So, you can make a lot of choices while you're here on earth. But the most important decision you'll ever make is how you answer the question, was Jesus telling the truth? Is he who he said he was? Did he do what he said he would do? Because at the end of your life, 
you're going to find out that eternity is a reality. And you're going to spend the rest of forever somewhere, billions and billions of years. Make no mistake, eternity is a reality. Now, today, I have a massive burden for you because I want to talk to you on the subject of hell and the fact that Jesus taught more about this subject than he did heaven. And I want to try and answer some questions about it because I know some of you are going to be skeptics. Some of you are going to have questions. Some of you are going to have objections to this idea of hell. And is it even real? So to set up where we're going, let me just share this with you. This past week, uh, I decided to go to the store. I needed two things, grocery shopping, ice cream and allergy pills, okay? (laughs) Two staples in my home, Tin Roof Sunday and Allegra. We need that on repeat a lot, especially during this time of year. Now, I was going to go to the 20 items or less express lane. I'm old enough to remember when it was 10 items or less, but for whatever reason, folks down at Kroger and Walmart decided to up that to 20. I'm not in middle management, so it is what it is. But I approach my line. A lady happens to see me. We made eye contact. but She pulled her card in there in front of me. Now, she clearly had over the allotted 20 items. I'm in, a, I'm in a decent mood though, right? I've got my ice cream. I'm fine. It is what it is. Proper shopping etiquette would suggest that you let the guy with the ice cream go in front of you, but whatever, okay? You got there. You're going through the line. Now, as she starts unloading this pile of cart, slowly inside of me, my patience is running out because my ice cream's melting. I need an allergy pill. As you can tell today, I'm a little stuffed up, all right? She just keeps unloading it in my mind. Unpastoral words were passing through. The filter caught them, okay? All right, the filter was on that day, so we were, we were in good shape. Furthermore, the church has gotten big enough that I didn't know if she might be here on Sunday, so I better not say anything to this lady. But not only did she cut in front of me, she had the audacity to start releasing all 50 of these items at the same time in a 20-item or less line. I was irate because in that moment, I wanted justice. I wanted the store manager to come out and scold this lady for clearly going through the wrong line and then allowing me to go in front of her as punishment for the fact that she did not utilize proper shopping etiquette. <laughs> Didn't happen, okay? But it was, I was wronged. I wanted to be acknowledged. Now, here's my question. Why is it that we all demand justice when something does something or someone does us wrong, but we don't believe God has a right to demand justice when someone does him wrong. Why is that? The fact that within us, in our DNA, anytime somebody does us wrong, we want justice. And yet, we're offended by a God who says that there can be a punishment for the decisions you make on earth. It's a valid question. Because when the Bible talks about hell... It does so in regards to love and justice. Hell is a just response to man's rebellion against God. Now, we don't like that. We like to say, well, God does deserve some justice. People have wronged him, but hell, it seems a little bit excessive because we haven't wronged him that bad. It's not like we've killed anybody. Hell seems a little bit on the offside 
in light of what we've done, because we're mainly good people. hear that a lot. I don't deserve hell. I'm mainly a good person. Well, let's chat about that, okay? See what the Bible has to say. So if you brought a Bible, let's go ahead and grab it, open it up towards the back to a place called Luke. Jesus likes to tell stories in the Bible, and the stories that he tells are often called parables. Parables are stories that have a meaning. And I want us to look at a parable today in the book of Luke. So uh, look for some guys' names if you're new to the whole Bible thing. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John is how it's going to go. When you find Luke, you want the big number 16. I want to remind you, this is Jesus talking in this story. Okay, Luke 16, 19 reads, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. I like that word, sumptuously. You guys want to say that on three? One, two, three. Man, that's fun, isn't it? The Bible's fun, people. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked this man's sores. The poor man died, was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died, was buried, and in Hades, Greek word for hell. I want you to take note of these next coming words, though. He was in Hades, being in torment. Jesus used those words to describe hell. He lifted up his eyes. He saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. Another noteworthy sentence. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should arise from the dead. A couple things I want you to notice here. There are dozens of parables in the Bible. And in these parables, there are dozens, if not hundreds of people And these people are never named. They're always called mother or father or sister or brother or farmer or uh, sower, son or daughter. But here, Jesus gives one of the characters a name. It's the only parable in Scripture where anyone is given a proper name. And then, in an obvious counterpoint, he leaves the other one nameless. Why? Because the name Lazarus means God is my help or God is my salvation. So Lazarus has a name because God is his help. God is his salvation. The rich man is simply called the rich man because wealth is his help. Money 
is his salvation. Listen to what Timothy Keller writes on this point. What sends you to hell is not being rich or being poor. What sends you to hell is not necessarily overt sins, though they can, like violence, insider trading, and stealing, and so on. What sends you to hell is to make anything but God your help. To sit down and rest content in anything but God as your salvation. That's what sends you to hell. In other words, if you're trusting in your kids more than you're trusting in God, you're a mother or a father. If you're trusting in your spouse to somehow provide you salvation and ultimate happiness, you're a husband or a wife. If you're trusting in your job to get you to heaven because you worked so hard, you're a farmer or a sower. Listen to me. If you trust in God as your salvation, you are named. Your name is found in the Lamb's book of life. God has a name for you. He's got a purpose for your life, and He wants you to accomplish it. You are a member of the family of God when you put your trust and hope and salvation in Jesus Christ. Be careful what you trust in, because that's what you will become. Somebody say amen to that. Be careful what you trust in. You need to be trusting in God. Here's what else I want you to see. The rich man was clearly religious. He wasn't a bad person. He looked up, saw Father Abraham, names him repeatedly in this parable as Father. Here's why that's important, because Abraham was father to the Jewish faith. So clearly this man knew who Abraham was. He had deep regard and reverence for Abraham. Otherwise, otherwise he wouldn't have said repeatedly, Father. He would have just said, hey, Abraham, hey, bro, come send Lazarus down, Right? He wouldn't have called him with a term of respect, which is, here's why that matters for you today. Because religion won't save you. Being a good person does not get you to heaven. It's not about religion. It's about relationship. This man was in hell. He was very religious. Not a horrible person. Yet, he doesn't once try and talk to God. You noticing that? He talks to Father Abraham. He doesn't ask God to save him or have mercy on his soul. He asks Abraham to send Lazarus. It's idolatry. He didn't know God. He knew religion. Furthermore, he's still trying to use his position and wealth to get out of hell. Look at the mess he's in. And he says, send Lazarus to cool my tongue. Like Lazarus is some kind of servant, some kind of slave. Most interestingly, what looks like compassion in this story really isn't. You realize when he says, Father Abraham, you must send Lazarus to speak to my brothers because if they just hear this news from someone who's risen from the dead, they won't come here. Do you know what that is? It's blame shifting. It's not concern. He's saying, I didn't get all the information I needed, and now look where I am. Just send somebody to, to speak to my brothers so they don't end up here. That's what happens to envious, proud, self-centered people. They'll never take responsibility for their actions. It was always somebody else's fault. He says, I didn't get enough information. That's why I'm here. Somebody, please alert my brothers. 
saying, I really shouldn't be here. Saying, I didn't get a fair shake in life. In today's world, that'd be like one of us saying, well, I'm not that bad of a person. I don't deserve hell. If I end up there, there, that's God's fault. It's not mine. He made me. That's the defense that people will often use. But what does Abraham say? He just obliterates the argument. He says, my dear friend, if somebody rises from the dead and shows up, they're not going to believe. They're going to sell their story to a movie studio. They're going to call 60 minutes. They're going to write a book about their little ghost story. Abraham says, don't you understand the reason you are here is not because you didn't have enough information. You and your brothers all have the truth. You just didn't do anything with it. In a very real way, Abraham is telling this man, the reason you don't believe is because you're unrepentant. For the record, this is what sin does. It causes you to be blind to the truth. It causes you to believe you're not that bad. What you're doing isn't that big of a deal. And if you, like this man, refuse to ask for forgiveness, to repent, as the Bible calls it, then eventually you'll lose touch with reality. You'll become a master in your own life and you'll forget how God should be the master. Your view of God will become completely distorted. And listen to me, God will allow you to rule your own life. It's one of the scariest ideas in all of Scripture that God will give you what you want. Now, the good news is the Bible makes it clear that as long as we're on this earth, no matter how hard we try to escape God, no matter how much we think we can rebel against God, no matter how much we're trying to move away from God, we can never completely get away from Him. It's what theologians call common grace. The sun rises on the just and the unjust alike. So even if you're not a believer in Jesus, you can still love to some degree. You can still enjoy the beautiful, cool mornings and the sunset. You're still able to think and able to create. You're able to laugh and to have fun. None of those things require God or Christianity. They've just been inherited because we've been created in the image of God, all of us. However, the Bible says, someday... If you continue trying to run away from God, if you continually try and push back on the fact that God wants to give you some things in life, He just asks you to follow Him. If you never want to do that, eventually God will allow you to succeed in that, to turn your back on Him. It's Romans 1.18. Watch this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Circle, star, underline, highlight, memorize without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened over time. 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. In other words, if you're going to reject God, he's going to allow you to chase after something that can never satisfy you. And over time, you take these small incremental steps and eventually you end up somewhere you never thought you would go. That's why anytime you talk to somebody about having an affair or some of these crazy things that they've done, they always say, I never saw it coming. I never knew how I got here. How did this happen? Because you allowed yourself over time to be blinded by sin. And eventually it just takes over your life. And that's God's wrath. I hope one day I can have the time to really drill into this idea of God's wrath because we all love the love and grace and all of that part. And we forget that over 600 times in the Bible, God's wrath is mentioned. It's a big deal and a huge idea. And yes, God cares about you. Yes, he wants to forgive you. There's nothing you can do to earn that. But in the end, if you continually, repeatedly rebel against that free, saving grace, eventually God will give you over to the evil desires within your heart. If you're trifling with something that God clearly says will kill you, you're headed down a dangerous path. If you don't repent, you're in line to receive God's wrath. But in love, God sent Jesus as our substitute to go to the cross in our place for our sins, to taste our death in order to give us eternal life. Which means if you do not trust in Jesus, if you do not come to Jesus, if you do not believe in and belong to Jesus, you are in the path of the wrath of God that ultimately culminates in the conscious eternality of hell. Jesus here in this Luke passage shows us that it's conscious. This man's aware of it. It's eternal. He's never getting out. He uses the language torment and anguish and flame. Now, why would Jesus do that? Specifically, this idea around flame. Why does the Bible repeatedly talk about fire? Here's what I think. Because fire is a place where things break down. When something is placed in a flame, it doesn't cease to exist. It's forever altered it's broken down into like ash and, and little tiny pieces, but it never ceases to exist. Same thing if you total a car. Still a car, just can't function as a car. All the parts have been disconnected. When human beings totaled in hell, they don't stop existing, but they are completely incapable of doing the things that make them human. You are forever 
altered because of pride and self-centeredness. If there are any of you who have anything in your life that you are condoning, if there's anything right now in your life that you know the Bible speaks against, even in your heart you feel like, I shouldn't be doing these things, but week in and week out you continually do them. Do you know what you're doing? You're playing with fire. Anytime I was in youth type activities, I would always ask the question, well, how close can I get to this without actually sinning? And that's the wrong question. How far away can I get from this? Because this is fire. This destroys lives. This leads to death. It's what sin does. If you're trifling with this, you're like a person sitting on a couch watching TV. You happen to look over and you realize the couch is on fire. And you think to yourself, well, I can probably finish my show before it reaches me. I'll just wait for a commercial. Odds are I won't get burned up in the flame. That's absurd. You would do whatever it took to put the fire out because you're risking your life for something as absurd as a TV show. Listen to me. If you're sinning, you're risking your life for something absurd, and you need to put the fire out. The Bible says, repent of this. Get rid of it. Go as far away from of it as you can. Stop playing with fire. Fire is disintegrating. Eventually, you won't even recognize who you are anymore. Because that's what fire does. Blinds you, breaks you down. It gets you away from the path God wants you to be on. The purpose that he has for your life. I'm trying to plead with you. This is a dangerous game that have eternal consequences. We'll talk about how that's just on God's part in just a second. Stop. Please stop trifling something that leads to your death. Now, I know there's still some of you that are going to object to all of this and you need some more information, so I'm going to try my best to answer some of these most asked questions that we had. First, number one, is hell real? Answer, yes. Jesus talks about it repeatedly, more than he talks about heaven. He's warning us, saying, yes, this is a real thing. It's real. Question two, who goes to hell? Unrepentant sinners. That's it. Could be good people. If they've never repented of their sins before a righteous and holy God, that's who goes to hell. Again, this is not my opinion. This is what the Bible says. Repeat it. This is what Jesus says. Watch this. This is Jesus speaking. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man, that's Jesus, comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as the shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the King That's King Jesus will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you. 
from the foundation of the world. Don't miss that. Who was heaven prepared for? You. You. But watch this. Verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for who? The devil and his angels. Hell was not prepared for you. Amen, somebody. Help me preach this. It's not for you. It's for the devil and his angels. Heaven was prepared for you. Why would you waste your time going to hell then? It's not for you. It's important. Verse 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There are no second chances. You make the decision while you're on the earth. Back to the story in Luke, Jesus says there are two men. A fix between them is a chasm. There's no relocation or visitation from one side to the other. There's heaven and there's hell. There's no changing your eternal destination. When you die, you're judged, sentenced, and that's where you'll be forever and ever. In this story, the man, the rich man, he would have loved to have crossed the chasm. He pleaded to have Lazarus come over, cool his tongue. He would have loved to exit suffering and enter into blessing. But Jesus, humble, gracious, kind, merciful, loving Jesus says there's no passing from one side to the other. There's no if at first you don't succeed. Try, try again. You have to make your decision while you're still alive. Now, I think it's fair to wonder, because we often hear this from people, because the rich man was able to look up and see Lazarus. So, are we aware within this chasm, if we, can we look down and see loved ones of ours that might have ended up in hell? How could there be a gracious heaven if we can be attuned to suffering in hell? It's a very good question. So, let me first say, first of all, I don't know. Okay? The Bible tells us everything we need to know. It doesn't tell us everything we want to know. So, it doesn't mean there's not an answer. It means I can't find it in Scripture. But in this parable, Lazarus never looked down to see the rich man. It's only the rich man looking up, and he only spoke to Abraham. We never see anything here that would indicate Lazarus was even aware of the rich man. So, who knows? But what I take from this story is our job is to simply tell everyone we can about the love of God, that He has a plan for their life, and that hell was never created for them, that heaven was. So we need to get the Word out. And I'll just leave the rest of it to God on who decides who gets in and who doesn't. I just want to tell people the truth. What's hell like? Number three, hell is the complete absence of, of God. It's life on your own without God bothering you. That's what hell is. It's not receiving any of the gifts that God has given everybody here on this earth. So, for example, the Bible says God is love. There's another passage that says love casts out fear. So, hell is going to be terrifying and lonely. 
You're going to be afraid. You're going to be by yourself. The Bible says God is light. So hell must be complete darkness. The Bible says God is good. Hell, there will be absolutely nothing good. God is generous. There's going to be eternal torment. It says God is gracious, which means hell is going to be a place of no grace. The Bible says God is relational, which means hell is going to be absent of relationship. In other words, hell is a damnable, wretched, horrible, cursed place. You do not want to go there. I think people have this false notion that you often see it in cartoons and that hell is going to be this place where you just get to party it up. Just do whatever you want. All the things that you couldn't do as a Christian, you get to do in hell. Listen to me. That is a lie from the father of lies. Bible says hell is a place for the devil. He's not going to rule hell. He's going to be just as lonely and terrified as everybody else that's there because it's a curse on him for rebelling against God, just like it's a curse for anybody else who decides to rebel against God. You know where the party's at? Amen, somebody. The Bible talks about feasts and parties and wine, and nobody's upset about that, by the way. We'll talk a lot about all of that next week because this is the place where the party's happening. The Bible talks about anytime somebody receives Christ as their Savior on earth, there's a party in heaven. That's the place where the parties happen. And they're going to be like steak prepared medium because that's the way God would have done it and Jesus would have ordered it. And anytime somebody goes to a restaurant and says, well done, he's going to slap them in the face in heaven for that exact reason. I'm begging you. Hell is real. It's not prepared for you. It's prepared for the devil and his angels. Heaven was prepared for you, and it's going to be the greatest place you can possibly imagine. This myth that you're somehow floating in the clouds playing in a harp, that is again a lie from the father of lies. I'll get there next week. Man, I about started preaching another sermon. It's almost time to get out of here. Question number four, what should we do now? In light of the fact that heaven is real, in light of the fact that hell is real, in light of the fact hell is not a place you want to go, what do we do? A, B, C, D, A, admit I need a Savior. Admit I need a Savior. The only thing that keeps you from heaven is your own pride. To say, I don't need a Savior. I can save myself. I'm not that bad. I'm decent. Listen, If you didn't need a Savior, God wouldn't have wasted his time sending his son to a cross to die for you. He would have made another way. This was a horrible death. He would not have wasted his time if you didn't need a Savior. Have you thought about that? Why would God die if you didn't need a Savior? Keep in mind what Jesus had to endure on the cross. 
And I'm not talking about the fact that he had his skin ripped from his back and that he had thorns pushed in to his skull and that he was nailed to a cross in order to suffocate to death. I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about the fact that Jesus had to pay everything that we owe. In other words, do you understand that going to hell does not pay for your sin because you're never getting out? So it was not enough for hell to pay for you. And Jesus had to take on all of our hells. Our debt is so great that hell never pays it off. So what Jesus experiences on the cross must be far worse than an eternity for a human being in hell. If my wife would reject one of you and say, I just don't ever want to talk to you again, your pain would be infinitely less than my pain if she did that to me. Imagine The same thing happening for God, how torturous it must have been to withdraw his presence from his son who had been with him for all eternity. It's painful enough for God to withdraw his presence from a human being. And then he chooses to withdraw it from his son. And what Jesus experiences on the cross was worse than hell. Then on top of that, he took all of our hells. Then on top of that, it was compressed within three hours on the cross. Do you have any idea what he experienced those three days afterwards? Think about him raging and crying out in the darkness of hell with no one to listen in some kind of cosmic spiritual war. That's what Jesus did for you. That's why Number two, you need to believe that Jesus died for me. This is more than head knowledge. This is a commitment and relying on to the fact that Jesus took your hell away from you. When God looked down and saw the results of Jesus' suffering and raising from the dead, he said, I'm satisfied. It's the most incredible sentence in the history of mankind because in the same way he looks at you and he sees Jesus and he says you're worth it unless you understand the depths of his suffering you have no idea what you're worth unless you understand the depths of the suffering Jesus had to go through you don't understand how much he loves you If you trivialize or get rid of the doctrine of hell, you'll never get a grip on the height and the width and the depth and the breadth of the love of Christ. What could possibly make you feel more loved than that? That the fact that this man made a way for you to live forever in the greatest place ever. Do you believe that? If so, then you have to commit yourself completely to God. You have to commit yourself to completely to God because he has a purpose for your life. And he has a plan that's better than anything you could possibly imagine. He simply asks that you commit your life to him publicly. How? Through baptism and joining a church. I often hear people say, well, I don't need to go to church. Church is the problem. And a certain part of me wants to understand that because there's a lot wrong with church, mainly each one of us. 
the fact that we're still sinners. So if you ever find a perfect church, please don't join that one. You'll screw it all up. But on the other hand, when you say that, when you don't commit to a church, when you don't make it a priority, you're not only belittling what Jesus did, because Jesus said, I will build my church. You're also belittling what every disciple and martyr through the history of time has went through. In order for us to be able to sit here and have this book in our hands and explore everything that God had to say, you understand these men have had their limbs ripped from their body. They were dipped in pitch, impaled on a stick, and set on fire to light pathways in kingdoms. They had holes drilled in their skull and molten lead poured in, all while they're still alive, so that we can sit in this room and explore everything that God has to say. I just read the news this morning, and a pastor's wife in China was buried alive so he could watch in order to recant his faith, and she told him not to. And he didn't, and she died. This is what's happening around the world to Christians every single day. People are dying because they're so committed to this doctrine of grace and salvation and God has a plan for your life and he loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. And yet we sit here and say, you know what? It's not my thing. Baseball tournament, soccer tournament, got the kids in a musical, just tired today, had a long week. The Bible says you're going to stand before a righteous and holy God when you die. And all the saints around him. And you're going to have to say, man, sorry. I didn't realize it was that important to you. Send his son to die. For us to be able to gather here and celebrate this cause and evangelize to the people around us. He just asks that you commit your life to that. He gave his for you. How can you not do the same for him? Which is why we have to depend on God's promise. Depend on God's promise. What promise? That Jesus died so you'll never have to. That's what you can depend on. That you get a new life. That you are a new creation in Christ. So if you'll just do these things, admit, believe, commit, and depend on God, you'll get a name that lasts forever in the glory of of heaven, and a new earth. That's what's promised to us. But listen to me. If you reject His mercy out of a desire to be your own person and really your own God, then you will get justice. And make no mistake, that's what it is. Just. Before you, there are only two options. Either you can be a trophy of God's grace. None of us deserve it. Or you can be an object of his justice. You get to decide that. How could you not commit your life to the God 
who left his throne to come to this earth to die for you, to take on hell for you. So listen, you wouldn't have to. That's what's before you today. Let's pray. God, we're here with you this morning, and we thank you for being with us in this place. We thank you for your presence. God, this is a difficult topic to discuss, to understand the reality of hell. But we know it's real. We know you taught about it. We know that nobody should ever want to go there. But we also know pride can get in our way. That we want to serve our own desires and not serve you. God, if there's anybody here this morning who understands this fact, they've been serving themselves. They want to change. They want to trust in your son. God, I just ask that you speak to them right now. And if that's you here this morning, you want to trust Jesus for the first time as your Savior, I just ask you to follow me in this prayer. Not because there's magic in this prayer, but because the Bible says confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. If that's you, just say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've sinned. I'm sorry I've fallen short. But I believe in Jesus that he died for me and rose from the dead. And because of that, I'm made new. I repent of my sin. Help me going forward. God, I thank you for that life. I thank you for everyone here this morning. God, get rid of our pride. Help us each turn back to you this morning and know in our hearts that you have saved us so that we can experience heaven for all of eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.